When I was a kid, it would not have been unfair to accuse me of being a daddy's boy. Um, my dad worked shift work, and so I didn't always see him as much as I would like every week, but I spent every opportunity that I had with him. And a result of that is that I learned to um, love a lot of the things that my dad loved. Um, I grew up learning to love rugby in Western Province in particular because my dad was a Western Province supporter. I never quite adopted his support for Everton. Um, I embraced his love for reading and for English and that irritating habit of correcting everyone's spelling and grammar all the time. But I also adopted a good deal of his musical taste. I remember growing up, while my brother was listening to Thunderstruck and Thriller, my dad and I were listening to White Christmas and New York, New York. Uh, my dad loved those 40s, 50s crooners, and I spent a lot of time um, listening to that kind of music with my dad as I was growing up. Well, recently I picked up the biography of my dad's favorite singer, and I was struck by something that the authors said in the introduction. This is a man whose record sales exceeded 100 million between 1945 and 1970. During that period, his music was outsold only by the Beatles, Elvis Presley, and Bing Crosby. In roughly the same period, 131 of his songs charted, 14 of those at number one. 17 of his songs were um, certified gold, which means 500,000 sales. And one of them, in fact, was the very first song officially certified gold by the um, Recording Industry Association of America. He was the first male singer to be awarded the Grammy for Best Vocal Performance in 1958, and he was posthumously awarded the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 2002. Four of his 33 albums were credited gold by the RIAA. He was a pioneer of television who hosted an incredible 1,049 shows of his own, even as he appeared on, as a guest on more than 80 other television programs. In 1959, he signed a two-year television contract worth $25 million. He won three Emmys and was inducted in 1990 to the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences Hall of Fame. And after a hiatus from live performing in, 19, in the 1960s, he eventually returned to the stage and gave more than 570 live concerts between 1966 and 1994. He was knighted by the Catholic Church, and he received honorary doctorates from Duke and Niagara Universities, and he holds the distinction of having three stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one for his work in television, one for his work in, in music, and one for his work in radio. Well, when the authors Malcolm McFarlane and Ken Croslin approached their publishers with a proposal to write a biography of this man, the first question asked was, well, how many biographies already exist? What are we competing with? And incredibly, despite all of those achievements, the answer was none. No one had yet thought to put pen to paper to write a biography of this man. And so the next question that the, bio, that the, the publishers asked was, okay, well, why? <laughs> you know, what, what are we missing? What, what great scandal is there in this man's life that no one has dared to yet write a biography of him? And again, the answer was actually none. The authors discovered, as they write in the, in the introduction, that his life was so bland and blameless that there really was no story to tell. His biographers describe him as, quote, an ordinary guy who happened to be able to sing, and that he could sing better than almost anyone else on the planet seemed to pass him by, end quote. Now, if I'm quite honest, reading this biography, it's, it's actually quite dull. 
<laughs> it's not like I read a biography of Frank Sinatra a few years ago, and that was quite exciting because of all the, the different things that he was involved in. You're reading a biography of Perry Como is who I'm talking about, and by comparison, it's, it's pretty boring. As popular as he was among certain generations for his music, he seemed to go out of his way when he was off stage to stay out of the limelight. He was married to the same woman for 65 years until she died just three years before him. There was no sensational extramarital affair. There were no children born out of wedlock. Him and his wife had three children, and he went out of his way to keep them out of the limelight. In fact, he never appeared on talk shows, and when eventually one talk show host eventually agreed to get him to appear, and people were thinking, well, finally, here's something about this man's personal life. When he walked out, the first thing he said to the, to the talk show host is, my personal life is off bounds. That's between me and my family. He was a practicing Roman Catholic his entire life and quietly supported a host of charitable causes, but rarely attached his name to those causes unless it was made obvious to him that there might be some benefit for fundraising purposes for you to actually attach your name to this. He was a man who knew that God had gifted him to sing, and he used that ability to entertain thousands of people on stage before walking off stage and fading into the background until the next concert. Well, in many ways, our, our um, hidden figures for tonight did the same. The dynamic duo, as I've called them, and we're not talking about Batman and Robin, <laughs> this dynamic duo um, walked onto the stage of redemptive history at several points, quietly did what God called them to do, and then faded into the background until the next concert, if you want to put it that way. Their names are mentioned always together, seven times in the New Testament, but they never hog the limelight. But it's in their quiet faithfulness, and that, that could potentially be an alternate title for the sermon, the quiet faithfulness, we learn some valuable lessons. And so tonight, tonight, I want to take a brief survey of the seven times that Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned in the New Testament, with a view to learning from them. And what is revealed in their lives teaches us at least three important lessons. And the first of those lessons is what I've titled a lesson about faithful church membership. A lesson about faithful church membership. We learn from the biblical narrative, as Anton read for us tonight, that Aquila and Priscilla moved around a fair bit for ministry purposes. But wherever they found themselves, you could be sure that they would be found with the people of God, that they would be found with the church. The first time we find them in the biblical record is in Acts chapter 18, which Anton read. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So what had happened there, historically Tommy mentioned this morning that, that there was tremendous persecution from the Jews against the Christians in the first century. And as the Roman authorities looked on that, they weren't able to distinguish between Christian Jews and non-Christian Jews. They just thought this was a Jewish persecution against Gentiles. And so in order to keep the peace there in Rome, they expelled all Jews from Rome. And unfortunately, Aquila and Priscilla had to leave, and they had to relocate. And they relocated to Corinth. And Paul came to Corinth, and he, he met this couple. And it says there in the end of verse 2, And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. As Paul traveled on his second missionary journey, he comes to Corinth where he meets this believing couple. And he found good fellowship with them and they labored in gospel ministry with him for 18 months while he was there in Corinth. 
But interestingly, when he left Corinth, as we read, he took Aquila and Priscilla with him. And I'm not sure what his original plans were, but he left Corinth, and his, his ultimate goal is to head back to Antioch, which was his sending church. But he's got a few more stops before he heads back to Antioch. And so he comes to Ephesus, and he plants a church in Ephesus. And now there are these brand new believers in Ephesus, and he realizes that these brand new believers need some stability. So he asks Aquila and Priscilla to stay in Ephesus to afford this church some stability with some more mature believers. And Paul then continues and he goes to Jerusalem. He eventually goes back to Antioch. The text passes by this quite quickly. But he was in Antioch probably for two or three years at least. And after that he decides he's going on his third missionary journey. The church sends him out again. And leaving on his third missionary journey, he comes eventually to, um, back to, um, to, to Ephesus where he had left Aquila and Priscilla. And we're told <coughs> that um, when he came there, um, he found them. He found them again, and most people believe that it was from Ephesus when Paul was there on his third missionary journey that that's where he wrote the letter of First Corinthians. So remember, Paul had met Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth. Um, he writes now to the Corinthians this letter that we've been studying on Sunday mornings with Doug. He writes First Corinthians, and at the end of First Corinthians, we read this: "The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca." Together with the church that is in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So we see that having served the church in Corinth for some time, they've now moved. They're in Ephesus, but guess where they are? They're with the church again. They've joined the church, and they're, they're with the church again. And they have fond memories of the church back in Corinth, and so they send them hearty greetings. But the point is that wherever you find Aquila and Priscilla, you find them with the church. Still later, when Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, he said, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ. Paul had never been to Rome, but when he wrote and he knew that Aquila and Priscilla were there, he knew where he was going to find them. He was going to find them with the church. Because what did they do? They always attached themselves to a church. And still later, in Paul's last inspired letter, when we find that they were back in Ephesus. And when Paul wrote to Timothy, who was now pastoring in Ephesus, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4 verse 19, greet Prisca and Aquila. Again, I know where they're going to be. They're going to be with the church. Don't miss the simple point. Wherever you read of Aquila and Priscilla, you find them connected to the church. Now we live in a, in a day where people say foolish things like, I've left the church, but I haven't left Christ. The New Testament doesn't know of an arrangement like that. In the Bible, God's faithful people are always connected to a church. It's an exercise in futility to disregard Christ's bride and yet try to remain faithful to him. At the most basic level, Aquila and Priscilla teach us the biblical call for faithful church membership. Let me just make this clear. It is never the will of God for his people to be separated from his bride. The Bible knows nothing of lone ranger Christians. The Bible knows nothing of Christians who just attend a church but are not a part of that church. If you profess faith in Christ, he intends for you to be in covenant relationship with other Christians in the context of the local church. We see several implications of that. One of those implications is for communion, isn't it? That in communion, you are saying that I am a part of this people. Many people make a case for what you call closed communion, that communion should only be celebrated by the members of a particular local church. <coughs> if you're someone who just attends the church, but I'm not going to join the church, 
well, then you shouldn't be partaking in communion because communion is for people that are committed to the bride of Christ. Aquila and Priscilla teach us about church membership, about faithful church membership. A second lesson we learn from Aquila and Priscilla, though, is a lesson about serving church membership. Again, Acts chapter 1, Paul comes to Corinth, he finds Aquila and Priscilla there, and they immediately begin to serve Paul. Now, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that in Corinth, and this wasn't true everywhere that Paul went, but in Corinth, Paul chose not to, to claim his right of being compensated by the church. Instead, when he came to Corinth, he chose to work with his own hands so that the church was not burdened. I mean, he didn't do that everywhere he went, but in Corinth, for whatever reason, that was the, that was the stance he took. And so he comes and he, he needs to be able to make a living somewhere. And he was a tent maker by trade. And so he finds Aquila and Priscilla who also happen to be tent makers. And they happen to be tent makers who own their own business. And so they allow Paul to come and work for them. While he's busy planting the church, Paul is able to work for them. And they are able to pay him for his labor so that he can earn a living wage while he continues to, to minister to the church there. Not only did they open their business to him, but they opened their, their home to him as well. It says, it says here that he came to Aquila and Priscilla and he stayed with them. And worked, for they were tent makers by trade. <clears throat> so we see here uh, that Aquila and Priscilla, who were perhaps best known for their teaching ministry, as we'll talk about in a moment, the first way that we see Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla serving the church was simply through their generosity and their hospitality. They opened their home and they opened their business to Paul so that Paul could earn a living from there. This couple's hospitality, in fact, extended to the entire church. Because in, both in Ephesus, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19, and in Rome, Romans 16, verse 15, Paul says, greet Pris Prisca and Aquila, or send greetings from Prisca and Aquila, and the church that is in their house. They opened their home to the church. What happened in, in New Testament times, we, we, there is this thought, I think Ati mentioned this a while ago, there is this thought today of going around that we should, we should not have big church gatherings. We should only have house churches. Because in the New Testament, you see churches in houses. You do, but in the New Testament, people that were wealthy had large houses. Acts chapter 2, there were 130, 120 plus the 11 apostles. 130 gathered together in one room in a house. I doubt any of us could fit 130 people together in our house. But wealthy people in those days often had large rooms, perhaps on their roof, where they could host big things. And Aquila and Priscilla, being business owners, probably had a big home, and they hosted the church in their house. They were willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of hospitality to their brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a way that we have opportunity to serve the church. Open your home to grace group. Maybe you're not even a grace group leader, but you say, you know, actually, I, I don't want to be a leader, but I've, I've got space in my home, and I can host a grace group. Find a leader, and, and let's, let's host. We've been making an appeal the last few weeks about opening up your home to host some of the weekender Delegates who are coming. Let me make a plug for that. Are you willing to serve by your hospitality? To say, I'm opening my home to brothers and sisters in Christ so that they can be ministered to. Aquila and Priscilla also served by discipling others in the faith. As I said, Paul took him with him when he left Corinth, but he eventually he left them in, in Ephesus. And as Anton read in Ephesians, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 24, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. 
he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And what happened? When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They heard this man preaching and they said, look, there's a way we can help you. We can disciple you in some things. They took him aside and they discipled him. Isn't it interesting that in 1 Corinthians, when the church had a problem with celebrity preachers, people were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos. No one was saying, I follow Aquila and Priscilla. But Apollos wouldn't have been who he was if it was not for the ministry of Aquila and Priscilla. They came and they helped him to understand the gospel more clearly and then they faded into the background and let him continue his ministry. Let me just say that like Aquila and Priscilla, we don't have to pursue position or power or prestige. We can simply look for ways to serve God faithfully in the church in which he has placed us. You don't have to be a pastor or a church planter or a missionary to serve God. You can find ways just within the context of church membership to serve one another in ways that will have eternal value. I suspect that the ministry that Aquila and Priscilla had toward Apollos is something that has eternal ramifications because they were willing to just come, come alongside a brother, help him in his understanding of the gospel, and then fade into the background again. Your generous hospitable, disciple-making service as a faithful member of a local church can have far-reaching impact for the glory of Christ's kingdom. But then thirdly tonight, and finally, we learn a lesson about sacrificial church membership. Sacrificial church membership. Flip over with me to Romans chapter 16. Last chapter of Romans. Again, Paul had never been to Rome. But he wrote to Rome, and by that time, Priscilla and Aquila were back in Rome. And he writes in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom I not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Aquila and Priscilla, Paul said, risked their their necks for his life. We would love to know how they did that. The text doesn't tell us because what they did is less important than that they did it. They were willing to serve even if it cost them something. Jesus taught that the faithful Christian life is a sacrificial Christian life, isn't it? If you will come after me, do what? Take up your cross, the symbol of sacrifice, the symbol of death. Take up your cross and follow me. We often think of sacrifice as the willingness to lay down our own lives, which we get the impression from Romans chapter 16, Priscilla and Aquila were willing to do. But I found it interesting this week, just looking through the New Testament, to see some of the concepts that are spoken of in the New Testament as sacrificial service for the sake of God. Let me briefly give you four things as we draw this to a close, that the New Testament mentions as sacrifices that are pleasing to God. First, we can sacrifice as Aquila and Priscilla did through generosity, when Paul wrote of, the, of the, the way that the Philippians had sacrificed financially to support his ministry, he spoke of it as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, Philippians 4 verse 18. By being willing to sacrifice for the sake of missions, we can live a sacrificial life to God. The writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 13 verse 16 Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There's a more general statement, not specifically about supporting missions, but just about being willing to be generous to other Christians in your church who are in need. God considers it a a sacrifice that is pleasing to him. 
God is pleased with a sacrifice of generosity. Secondly, in the New Testament, we see we can sacrifice by confessing Christ. Again, the writer to the Hebrews charged the church that he was writing to in Hebrews 13 verse 14. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. By being willing to publicly confess Christ, we are making a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Tommy mentioned this morning that the the Hebrew Christians, to whom the book of Hebrews was written, were under immense pressure in the first century. That they were under pressure to forsake Christ and turn back to the temple sacrifices. They were facing this opposition, and the promise was, if you will just turn back and you will renounce Christ and return to the sacrificial system, the opposition will stop. You can stop all this persecution that is happening against you. But the writer of the Hebrews tells them that maintaining a firm profession in the face of pressure was a sacrifice that was pleasing to God. For decades, it's been easy to be a Christian in most of the Western-influenced world. But I think increasingly, biblical Christianity is being sidelined as outdated and bigoted. And it can be easy, under pressure, to actually abandon our faithfulness to Christ. Because we don't want to look out. We don't want to look outdated. We don't want to look bigoted. But the Bible tells us that we honor Christ by faithfully confessing him, even when all the pressure is on us to deny him. That's a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Thirdly, we can sacrifice by living holy lives. Peter wrote of the spiritual sacrifices that we offer, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, which are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And a little later, he describes those spiritual sacrifices in this way. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When we live lives that reflect Christ-likeness, God considers it an acceptable sacrifice. And then fourthly, we sacrifice with transformed minds, which are reflected in transformed lives. When you think of sacrifice, perhaps your mind immediately goes to Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In many ways, that sums up what the sacrificial... Christian life looks like by living, by offering your body as a living sacrifice, by living a life of, of a, a transformed life because your mind has been transformed. But I want you to notice what Paul says here. The motivation for offering your body as a living sacrifice, he says you can only do that by the mercies of God. And what does he mean by the mercies of God? He means what he wrote in the first 11 chapters of Romans, by the gospel. But what Paul has explained by the gospel, in other words, only those who have been transformed by the gospel can live lives that are sacrificial, that are an acceptable sacrifice to God. It is only those who have experienced the mercy of God by the sacrifice of Christ who can offer their bodies as a living sacrifice. Christ gave everything, his blood, his sweat, his tears, indeed his very life for us. And the implicit question is, can anything be too much for us to give back to him? Now, we often think, well, I'd, I'd love to serve God more faithfully if only my health would allow it. Can you imagine if Jesus said that in the Garden of Gethsemane? 
I would love to give sacrificially to God, but I mean, I'm sweating drops of blood here. This is just not a good time. Let me rather go lay down in bed and I'll, I'll come back another time and, and offer sacrificially to God. We say we'll serve God if our schedule will allow it. Have you ever read the Gospels and seen how busy Jesus was? That at times he had to wake up hours before his disciples were up just so that he could find some time alone to pray to God. He was exhausted at the end of the day. He was sleeping in a boat when professional fishermen were terrified because of the storm that was surrounding them. That's how tired he was. He had a busy schedule, and yet he lived sacrificially. I'd love to serve God sacrificially if my finances will allow it. We, we make all these excuses, but we need to remember that no sacrifice is too outrageous when we consider what Christ gave for us. And so let's learn from this dynamic duo, Aquila and Priscilla, what quiet faithfulness looks like. Let us, like them, commit to being faithful members, serving members, sacrificial members, as we offer to God ourselves as living sacrifice, considering the great sacrifice that he paid for our redemption. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Christ, and we pray that considering what he has given for us, nothing would be too great for us to give to him. Thank you for the example of Aquila and Priscilla. Help us to learn from them, to be faithful members, to be serving members, to be sacrificial members for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.